before you sit down, let me just say that's probably the most important question I'll ask you today. It might be the most important question you've been asked in a long time. Was our worship just now pleasing to God? And I don't mean did we sound good. And I don't mean did you feel good about what happened. But was your individual worship before God just now pleasing to him? And you don't want to answer any of that question right now. Just think about it. It's especially relevant in light of today's passage. I'm going to read you a section of today's passage where Jesus is talking to some people that are very diligent, very serious, and very sincere in their worship. And he says to them, you hypocrites. It's in Mark chapter 7. And then he doesn't say what next, anything about them being two-faced. He doesn't say anything to them about secret sin in their lives, which is often what we think about when we think of hypocrites. But instead he critiques their worship And so let me read to you uh, what he says next. He says, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. You hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So what I'm asking you is really a heart question. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are about rules taught by men. And so sometimes you'll hear people say things like, uh, as long as you're sincere, that's all that God cares about. And you'll even hear in our culture, in our society, people say things uh, like, you can call God any name you want, Allah, Buddha, Jesus, but as long as you're sincere, then that's what he, he knows the heart. And it is true that he knows the heart. He's not okay with any of that worship, though. He says that there's some worship that's in vain, and that means it's empty, that it's pointless, that it's purposeless, that the best case scenario is you're, you're wasting your time. And he's not talking about style preferences and how we feel and whether we're sincere. He's not even just talking about whether it's accurate, whether it's true. Some people think that the key to worship is that we worship with truth, that it has to be accurate. As long as it's accurate, then the styles don't matter. And there's an element of truth to that, but that's not the most important point. See, there's only one kind of worship that's acceptable to Jesus. And it's worship from the heart. It's worship with a pure heart. Today I want to ask you the question in our sermon... Did your worship matter? Or was it vain? Was it a waste of time? Was it pointless? Was it directionless? Was it empty? And not did it sound good, not did it feel good, but was it from a pure heart? And really the question I'm asking is this, are you a hypocrite? And before you think to yourself, I'm not, we'll study the passage together today. So you can go ahead and have a seat, and I'll pray for us, and we're going to jump into Mark chapter 7, and we're going to cover, hopefully, Lord willing, verses 1 through 23. Let me pray. Father, thank you that we get to come before your throne as we sang in that song that we can be in your presence that you've given us your truth that you speak not just words so that we'll be smarter people not just words so that we can feel good about what happened here today in this religious thing that we did but you speak to our hearts god speak to our hearts god please get right to our hearts in this message today just as you spoke to the people in this passage please speak to us and transform us i pray no one would leave here more religious but we'd all leave here with a heart that's right with you in jesus name i pray Amen. If you have a Bible, Mark chapter 7 is where we're going to be. And like I said, hopefully we'll cover uh, 23 verses here today because that's the whole of this passage. And if you haven't been with us, maybe you weren't here last week or maybe you missed the week before, uh, just to give you an idea of what's happening, we've been going through the book of Mark since January. We've been covering every verse, and we've seen a lot of the life of Jesus, his words, his works, his miracles, the confrontations he's had with religious people, the teaching he's done for his disciples. We've seen a lot of that stuff. At no point up until now has Jesus been more popular than right now. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the feeding of the 5,000. Last week, Pastor Jason, our shepherding pastor, showed us the passage where Jesus walks on water. John tells us in his account, uh, the Gospel of John, at this stage of Jesus' ministry, he's so popular, Jesus is, 
that people try to make him king by force. Now, he is the king of kings, and no one needs to make him that. They wanted to make him their ruler. We're going to follow you, and Jesus doesn't give himself to them. Do you know why? Because they didn't understand who he truly was. They were wanting him to be something that wasn't why he came. In fact, what they wanted was they wanted a political ruler because they were under Roman oppression, and people were being beaten, people were being raped, people were, things were being taken in the name of peace. And people looked out at their society and said, things are not as they should be. Can you relate to that? I don't know if you watch the news this week. You see racism in our hearts. And you see hatred in our hearts. You see people shooting police officers that are trying to protect and serve. There's a wickedness there. And let me tell you something. There is no law that's going to fix that. There's no legislation that's going to fix our society. And some of us are looking to maybe the next election, some political thing. If we just, and you watch the news, I watch the news a lot. The talking heads will come on there and they will ramble on about if we did this and we got to make awareness and this can't happen. And none of them are sharing the gospel. And so what some of us do is we fall into the trap of thinking that's going to fix our society. If we just, and we want Jesus to do that. We want Jesus to fix our society. We want Jesus to clean up the thing. And here's what Jesus came to do. He came to do that. But he deals with racism by dealing with the heart. He deals with hatred by dealing with the heart. What these people wanted is they wanted a political ruler that would free them from the Roman oppression, that would change the political environment and make their lives better. And it wasn't who Jesus really was. And you know what? We do the same thing. And so what we oftentimes do as people in the church, and so you ask yourself when you were singing a little while ago who you're singing to, so what we often do is we make a Jesus in our own image, a Jesus that has a plan for us, and we know that plan, and we really like it, and so we think about it when we're singing, we feel good about it, and we might sound good as we're singing the songs, but when we're worshiping a Jesus that isn't actually the Jesus of the Bible, guess what? Our hearts are far from him, and we're hypocrites. And that has plagued the American church. That's where these people are at in this passage of Scripture. And there's a group of guys that come to him to talk to him about some of the things that Jesus is teaching. And he calls out their hypocrisy. Let's look at it. Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 1. We'll read the first seven verses together to start. So the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law. So these are the experts in the law. These are the guys that are like, we're the bosses. We're in charge. We decide what's right and what's wrong. Uh, They had come from Jerusalem and gathered around Jesus. And so Jesus and Capernaum, they're coming from Jerusalem. It's about a 90-mile journey. Now, we know this probably isn't going to go well, if you can remember back when we were in chapter 3. The last time a delegation came from Jerusalem to see Jesus, they confronted Jesus because they said he was casting out Satan by the power of Satan. By, the name was Beelzebub. It's name for Satan. So by Beelzebub, by the power of Beelzebub, you cast out Beelzebub. But guess what? That didn't go well for them. <laughs> you can go back and read chapter 3. And then Jesus went on to show how he's stronger, stronger than Satan, stronger than enemies, stronger than difficulties in life. And then now he's gotten to this place where he's super popular. They're sending in another delegation. It's not going to go well for them either. Just a heads up. Don't want to ruin the story. They gather around Jesus and they saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean. That is unwashed. But we're not talking about hygiene here. And some of us may think that when we read that. And we can make jokes about, you know, they're germaphobes and all that kind of stuff. That's not what's happening. This is really serious stuff. This is heavy stuff. In fact, to, to not do what they're, Mark's going to tell us in a minute because he's not writing to a Jewish audience either. He's going to explain these customs here in the next couple verses. And you've got to understand, this was a crime that was considered punishable by death. And the rabbis had a saying that if you were going to eat a meal and you hadn't washed your hands, it's better to walk four more miles to get to some water than it is to eat that meal. And Mark explains some of that to his readers in the next verses. He says, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. And the elders weren't just the leaders in their church in that, that synagogue. It's the ancients. It's like the fathers, it's like the guys who are already dead, but they said this stuff was really important. Verse 4. 
When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. And so they've got a lot of stuff like this. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Some of them are puzzled by this. It's such an important thing. And here's Jesus as a rabbi, and he's not doing this. But look what Jesus says. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are about rules taught by men. So uh, Jesus ups the intensity level here. Uh, some of you I know are intense people. I don't think any of us have anything on Jesus. And so try and imagine you're one of the Pharisees here. And so you're like the professional religious person. Your whole life is devoted to being committed to God, to worshiping God. You believe your worship is sincere. Your worship is serious. You're t- diligent about this. And then you look at Jesus and you think he's not. And maybe you ask this question out of genuine sincerity. And, and you're, why don't, and they don't even have the courage to say, Jesus, why don't you? They said, why don't your disciples implied you? Why are they asking Jesus? Why don't your disciples wash their hands? Why are they eating with unclean hands? Jesus doesn't answer their question. Did you notice that? He's good at that, by the way. <laughs> he flips the script on them, and he puts it, the question back on them. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. Now, wait, they know Isaiah. Isaiah was written about 700 years before this passage of Scripture took place. And so if you're one of the Pharisees, you're sitting there and you're thinking, I've read Isaiah. I don't remember seeing my name in that book. And they've probably memorized, you've probably memorized, if you're one of these Pharisees, chunks of the the book of Isaiah. And so you know this stuff. And so you're going to be shocked when Jesus quotes the passage he does, Isaiah 29, verse 13. He says, you hypocrites. Now, if there's anybody that thought they weren't hypocrites, it's these guys. Because most of us, when we think of a hypocrite, we think of someone who doesn't practice what they preach. Uh, it's like with my kids. The other, everyone wants to know if the person that's talking to them actually does the stuff that they're saying. I was saying to my kids the other day, girls, did you make the beds? They're all like, like down in the living room, chilling out. And I was like, hey, did you, are your beds made? Like you didn't make your, you can't be hanging out if your bed's not made. My six-year-old daughter says, dad, did you make your bed? <laughs> I felt really righteous in that moment because I had, get your little butts upstairs, make your beds. You know. I made my bed. You don't get to go check though. You want to know, do you practice what they preach? And most of us, when we think of a hypocrite, what we think of, you know, these terrible stories out there, you see, you know, it's the pastor that rails against homosexuality, and then he has a male prostitute on the side. You know, it's the deacon that is always telling him, you need to give more to the church, give more to the church, and you find out he's stealing money out of the offering plate. That's a hypocrite. Most of us, that's what we think of for hypocrite. And that makes sense. And you hear that preached in, in, in passages of Scripture because the word actually comes from uh, someone who wore a mask in a play. It's from a Greek theater, and, and it gives that idea of a pretender. But here, that's not what's being talked about. These guys did practice what they preached. In fact, that was part of their problem. They were so good at practicing what they preached, they missed what was actually happening inside of them. And that's what Jesus goes after. He says, your lips, you praise me. You're actually good at singing. It might have sounded good. You might have done a nice job at it. The problem is your heart. And here's the main point you need to not miss today is this, is that hypocrisy attempts to hide your heart. Hypocrisy attempts to blind us to see what's actually going on within us. And that was the problem for these guys. And what we see in this passage, there's more than three things here, and you can study it on your own, but there's at least three that we're going to look at today, three things that show us whether or not we're a hypocrite. And so I ask you that question, are you a hypocrite? And you might not naturally think to yourself, well, I'm not a hypocrite. I'm not, I don't have the secret sin, or I'm not doing one thing and saying the other, or whatever. If you assume you're not a hypocrite, it's a good sign you might be a hypocrite. If you started thinking about somebody else, because these guys, when they heard, when Jesus said, 
You hypocrites. They might be, they're an adulterer, a slanderer, a murderer, a gossip, but not me. If you were to ask them the question, who do you know that's a hypocrite? They would not have thought, maybe I am. Because here's the first thing we see about hypocrisy is that hypocrites are blind to their own hearts. Hypocrites are blind to their own spiritual condition. It's part of being a hypocrite is you just can't see it. It's why when Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 5, he blows the people's minds. He says, hey, if you're going to make it to heaven, your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees. Because everyone knew the Pharisees were the most righteous people. They were meticulous. The hand washing, not just before every meal, in between every course. It was a big, like they're so meticulous about their worship and doing everything right and practicing what they preach. They don't even see the wickedness of their own hearts. And so what Jesus does, it's interesting, if you read Matthew chapter 5, as he quotes scripture and says things like, hey, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, and what he's doing is going after the heart. If you get angry, you're already guilty. Before you do the outward act, the problem's already there. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And the Bible does say that. But then Jesus says, but if you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery with her. And a lot of us, oh, it's kind of an extreme. I get, you're just making a point. No, he means it. And what he's doing is he's going after the heart. Hey, you heard it said, love your neighbor. Yeah, that's the greatest commandment. Jesus says, I'm telling you, love your enemy. What he's doing is he's going after the heart. And the problem for the hypocrite is they're blind to their heart. And you think about these guys in this passage of scripture, how shocked they would be. And you read those first five verses. These guys are coming 90 miles. They're not coming there to be judged by Jesus. They're coming there to judge Jesus. They are the experts in the law. They are dedicated to worship. They are the ones that see that Jesus seems to take worship a lot less serious than they do. And they don't have a clue what's happening in their own hearts. And Jesus points that out to them. And another place in scripture, actually, Jesus points out how blind we are when we are hypocrites. He says this refrain in Matthew chapter 23. I just want you to notice the the refrain. It's not even the the content of that passage. You can read the passage on your own if you want to see it. But in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 17, he says, you blind fools. Then he goes on to talk about some of the things that they do. But then a couple verses later in verse 19, there's the refrain, refrain. You blind men. In verse 26, same chapter, Matthew chapter 23, blind Pharisee. He's saying, you don't see it. It's there. You just don't see what's happening in your heart. We talk about that oftentimes. You hear people say, you know, God looks at outward, or man looks at outward appearance, God looks at the heart. It's a quote from 1 Samuel chapter 15 when when David's about to become king. And a lot of times we'll say that statement like, you can't judge me because you just look at the outward appearance. Here's the reality. You don't know your own heart either. We can't see it. Because man does look at outward appearance. We look at our own outward appearance. We don't know our hearts. And here's how we know this to be true. Jeremiah tells us, Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9, the heart is deceptive and wicked, deceitful above all things. And so you'll hear people say, it's a really common statement, and especially if you confront somebody in sin, well, God knows my heart. <laughs> that is true. I have no idea why that's a comforting statement to you. Because God does know your heart, and your heart is desperate and wicked and deceitful, and you don't even know your heart. One of the essences of hypocrisy is that we're blind. And so you say to someone, hey, you shouldn't be sleeping with somebody that you're not married to. Well, God knows my heart. I know. That's why I'm telling you this. But we take comfort in this statement. We've been deceived. It's like, I don't know if you've ever seen the show Hoarders. 
I don't know if you've seen that show or not. You can look it up online. I've only seen one or two episodes, but my understanding of the show is that it's pretty much the same over and over again, but the cases are different, and people have this uh, mental condition where they feel guilty throwing anything away. And so it's a, it's a disorder that they have, and their houses become, sometimes their houses look great on the outside, but then you get an inside, and it's all kinds of different stuff. And I was reading through the website this week, and the episodes are all different things that are being collected. Sometimes it's newspapers and magazines, but they, they become so, you know, there'll be stories of somebody tripped over them, broke their leg, and then, but they still couldn't throw them away. They felt bad about throwing them away. It'd be food. There was one guy on there that had food at different levels of decay all throughout his house. Just couldn't throw food away. And some people, it was um, animals. There was one woman on there that she didn't know how many cats she had. And so I know there's like jokes about the cat lady. And so this woman had dead cats in her house. She didn't even know they were dead. Over 75 cats in her house. How do you not know that that's a problem? Well, she didn't know it until the therapist show, shows why this is actually an issue and maybe even why that it's happening. But it's, it's not like you couldn't see that there were a bunch of cats. It's not like you couldn't see that there were a bunch of magazines or Happy Meal toys or whatever the stuff was that was being collected. But you didn't see it until you were confronted with it. And you start looking at it. That's normal with hypocrites. How do hypocrites really know that they're hypocrites? And there's the blatant cases. You know, one says one thing, it does something else. You, know, you preach on the sanctity of marriage and cheating on your wife. And like, we see those cases, and those are, those are terrible cases. That is hypocrisy, but this subtle hypocrisy that the Pharisees are being confronted with, one of the sins that Jesus hates more than any other sin, most people have no idea that's true in their lives. Think about in the Bible. Luke chapter 18, there's that famous story of the Pharisee and the tax collector that go to the temple to pray. And, and we know how the story goes because Jesus gives us commentary on it. He says two men go to the temple and they go to pray and the Pharisee's praying and says, thank God that I'm not like some of these other sinners. And he lists these sinners off and he says, I'm not like this tax collector. And then Jesus says, and then the tax collector won't even look up to heaven. He's crying out for mercy, have mercy on me because I'm a sinner. And then Jesus says, both men leave, only one man leaves justified. And it's the guy who was crying out for mercy. But implied is the other guy left thinking he was justified. And he wasn't. What about Judas? Did Judas know he was a hypocrite? He's like the classic example of hypocrisy. But just last chapter, Mark chapter 6, Judas was sent out just like all the other disciples, two by two, and we're told what happens in that passage. We can assume Judas did it. They preached the gospel. Judas was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins. Turn to Jesus. Jesus is the one who can forgive you for your sins. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Judas preached the gospel. Would anyone have looked at his life and thought, he's a hypocrite? No, because we look at outward appearance. But God knew his heart. Judas cast out demons in the name of Jesus. Judas healed people in the name of Jesus. If you're looking at the 12 disciples and you're trying to, one of these guys is a hypocrite, pick which one. I'm probably going with Peter if I don't know what the Bible says. Like, the guy keeps messing up in front of everybody. Who's picking Judas? But you know what the Bible says about Judas? It would have been better had he never been born. You can say, well, I don't know if he's in heaven or hell. If he were singing praises for all of eternity in this moment, I'm going to tell you what, it wouldn't have been better had he never been born. But did he even know he was a hypocrite? See, hypocrites are blind to hypocrisy. Danny Aiken is the, uh, the president of the seminary here in town. He's got a commentary on the book of Mark. I was reading it this week, and he says this. He said, let me introduce you to a prospective church member. And he says, uh, he will attend every service, including special events, He'll go on mission trips with a passion to convert the heathen. He will tithe, sing in the choir, read his Bible daily, and memorize scripture. He'll be happy to pray in corporate worship. He's thoroughly orthodox in his theology. He's an inerrantist. That means he believes the Bible is God's word, that it's true, that it's accurate. And he believes in heaven and hell. He never gets drunk. 
is not addicted to porn, never uses profanity, is a family man, loves his country fervently, weeps on July 4, votes the right way. Which way is that? Uh, his reputation in the community is stellar. If any man ever earned his right to go to heaven, it's this man. His religion is certainly something to admire. Sadly, this man is headed for hell. I've just introduced you to a 21st century Pharisee. Notice nothing he says about the description of that man has to do with his heart. And so who's, whose worship is acceptable to God? Psalm 23, only those who have clean hands and a pure heart. There's only one kind of worship. And so they worship with their lips, but it's in vain, it's in vanity because the heart is not there and they don't even see it because hypocrites are blind to their spiritual condition. That's not the only thing that we see in the passage, though. Not only are hypocrites blind to their spiritual condition, not only are hypocrites the one that go, I'm, it's not me, hypocrites also focus merely on the externals. Now, there's a time to focus on external things, but hypocrites focus merely on the externals. And we see that by what these guys are talking about here. When they look at Jesus... They notice this hand-washing issue. And, and Jesus, and Mark tells us here in this passage, right before he even gets to uh, Jesus confronting them, that they had a whole bunch of issues like this. And they cleaned cups and pitchers and kettles, and it was all external. That's the point. Because that's what we can see. So it's natural that we focus on, the, is they a good Christian? Well, I don't know. They go on good mission trips. Do they do this? Serve? Do they serve here? Do they do these things? But God's talking about the heart. And so for these guys, it was hand-washing. Hand-washing was a big deal. Uh, like I said, we can make fun of it. There are a lot of jokes that this lends itself to. But it was serious for them. And they were diligent in the way that they did it. There was a specific way that you had to wash your hands, and you didn't just do them before each meal. You did it in between each course. And you take about a, a, not a... It wasn't even for hygiene. This wasn't about hygiene at all. You'd take a little, uh, about an eggshell's worth of water and you'd pour it over your hand with your fingertips up and then you'd take this hand and you pour it over your hand so once it rinsed onto your wrist and then pull off the fingertips and you don't want any uncleanness and so you take your fist and there was a certain way you did it on both hands between each meal and there's a ritual cleansing and there's lots of, lots of ways that we can just mock this but you start reading about how serious they took this. There were people that died over this belief. There were... Rabbis that were excommunicated because they didn't keep this ritual of hand washing. There's one story that's told, and I'm not sure if it was a legend or if it's a real story. I couldn't find a real source on it, but it's, the story was of a guy who was under Roman imprisonment, and he almost died because he took his ration. He'd get ration of bread and food and water, and instead of drinking the water, he used it for ritually washing his hands. That's how important this was to them. And they do a bunch of other stuff like this. And I've talked to you before about how the Pharisees are so, Jesus confronts them about their Sabbath rules. They're so consumed with making sure no one does any work on the Sabbath that they had all these rules written down about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. I read one this week that just it was like, I'd never seen this one before. It was a head scratcher to me. And it was a, they would debate about as Pharisees. If a man's house burned down on the Sabbath and he had a wooden leg, if he carried his wooden leg, whether that counted as work or not, and I, I don't know a lot about prosthetics, but I thought, wouldn't I put my leg on if I were trying to get out of a burning house? But then I thought to myself, how often did this even happen? <laughs> like, a guy has a wooden leg, and his house catches on fire on the Sabbath, and he then chooses to grab the leg. And then what? You're a sinner. Like, what? what you're not going to grab your leg? 
They're actually arguing about this because hypocrites focus on the external. You're going to see later in the passage, Jesus is going to declare all foods clean. That you can, there's, not some, there's not a food you can eat that makes you a sinner. There's not a food you can eat that makes you unclean. And so that's, that's, a, that's important for a little side argument, by the way. But sometimes people, especially when you're arguing about homosexuality, uh, people will say, well, the book of Leviticus says don't eat shellfish, and you had lobster over the summer, so what, well, how's this any different? You're not even consistent with your own book. Well, Jesus invalidated all the food stuff right here in this passage. But there are people that still exist on this earth today they would think that what makes you a sinner is what you eat. I took my uh, wife out for our anniversary last weekend. It was our 16th year wedding anniversary. Some of you may have seen on Facebook. I took a picture. We were dressed up, and we were at Sheets Gas Station. And uh, that is not where I took her. I said that on Facebook because I've got a debate going with our children's pastor about whether Sheets has any good food at it or not. He's wrong. He thinks that there is good food, but he tells me, like a typical church argument, he says, there's a lot of people in our church that have come to me. They're all anonymous, but there's a lot of them that agree with me that Sheets, and I'm just going to use the pulpit right now to say, Sheets is not good food, so don't do that. And But I said that I took my wife there. Don't believe everything you see on social media. That's not where I took her to eat, just so you know, for our 16-year wedding anniversary. I took her to a foodie place that I found on Yelp. I didn't see Sheets on Yelp, <laughs> believe it or not. But we went to this restaurant, and it was a real trendy foodie type place. And it, I remember when we sat down at the table, I looked over, and there were some people that had bone. At the, and it wasn't like bone like you ate some ribs or something. It was like they were eating out of the bone. Bone marrow apparently is a trendy thing to eat. And I thought, this is going to be fun. <laughs> you know, I sit down at the table. And there was one item on the menu that my eye went to right away. And I'm going to tell you in the exact grammar that it happened in my head what I thought. It was crispy pig head was the dish that was on there. The thought I had was, I ain't eating that. <laughs> and the waitress comes to our table. I said, hey, we've never been here before. It's our anniversary. What's good? Guess what she says? Crispy pig head. I said, nope, not having crispy pig head. I'll eat like this ink squid stuff here. You got that? something, a bone marrow I'm open to trying. I'm not having that. She starts telling me, well, you know, they, they, it's just the cheek and they fry it. And guess what we ordered? Crispy pig head. And here's something I've learned. I've learned this in the South. Now, some of you are Southerners just because you were born here. I chose this, <laughs> just so you know. But the, one of the things I've learned, and you go to the fair, you can learn this. Anything's good if you fry it. Right? Amen? All right. Oh, I just keep saying fried food. I get lots of amen. It was good. The pig head was good. It was fried. They, they would have thought that made me a sinner because they're focused on the external. See, hypocrites focus on the external. And we, we do it too. You know, that's why people say oftentimes the church is full of hypocrites. Do you know what they mean by that? And that they're not just talking about the blatant hypocrisy of talking about generosity and being greedy, of talking about sexual purity and being sexually immoral. They're not talking, that's obvious. Everyone knows that. What they mean is they're being authentic. They're being true to themselves. And they're saying that you and me and all of us are phonies because we want to do the same things that they do but we just clean ourselves up and we straighten up our act and we, we become religious and we don't use the same words and we don't go to the same place and we don't do, but we still want to. And what they're saying when they say the church is full of hypocrites is they're just like me, except they won't be honest about it. And do you know what? Many of them are right about a lot of us. The hard part is actually getting to the heart of the issue. Jesus confronts this in Matthew chapter 23 too. In Matthew chapter 23, I already read you a few verses from that passage, but in verses 25 through 28, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Here's why. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. But in the outside, no one would know that. 
Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean off. The behavior will take care of itself if we deal with the heart. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And he uses a different example, but it's the same point. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. What Jesus is doing is going, let's get to the heart. Isn't it interesting that when he says this statement, he quotes from Isaiah. Did you make this observation? Did you notice this? He says, you worship me, you praise me with your lips. Is there a more external part of our body than our lips? But he says, but it's your hearts. It's the heart that was the core of your identity to the Jew. It's not the organ, but is there, a more in, is there something more within us than our heart? Say, no, you've got the outside. That's covered. And that's part of your problem. As it looks so good on the outside, you don't realize what's lacking in the heart. And here's one of the dangers. You can do the right thing for the wrong reason. It's possible to do the right thing for the wrong reason. I do it all the time at my house. I was thinking through this week, the stuff, I, I take the garbage out every week. I don't like, I never have woken up in my life yet and thought, yippee, I get to take the garbage out today. Well, it's not that big of a deal. I don't hate it. You know what I hate? I hate mowing the lawn. I've got allergies. I don't like mowing the lawn. Do you know what I really hate? Isn't mowing the lawn, because that's just kind of monotonous. It's, it's the weed whacking that I actually hate. Can I get an amen about that? Anybody hate weed whacking? Amen. Just laughing at me, right? Nobody, nobody will say amen that one. You know why I hate weed whacking? I hate weed whacking. I, have good, I love it when the driveway is like edged nicely. I'll even go over. I try to be a good neighbor to my neighbor and weed whack next to his fence. And then what happens inevitably is about every 10 seconds, I either get wrapped up with the string or it breaks off. Or, you know, I bought the as seen on TV things before that aren't supposed to have any of those problems. I don't even know how to install that stuff. I've taken my weed whacker. I've actually thrown it on the ground in my front yard and yelled at the thing before. It's not even, it's not even a thing. It's just a thing, I guess. I hate it, but I do it. I do it out of obligation. And some people, that's how they live their Christianity. So you can do the right thing for the wrong reason. Some of you weed whack your yard, and it's a joy to you, I'm sure. A lot of you probably read your Bible on your own, outside of this, hopefully. A lot of you probably read your Bible. Why do you do that? That's the question. Do you do it because that's what good Christians do? Do you read your Bible because you think you're supposed to? Do you read, maybe you have a superstitious belief that if you read your Bible, like a verse a day keeps the devil away. Do you read your Bible because then you think God will bless you more? But some of you, you read your Bible because you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Some of you read your Bible because you want a word from God. Do you see the difference? Same behavior, two different reasons. Some of you, you guys shared that gospel. We just did a survey of our church back in February, and uh, our church... It's not like the, the national statistics. It was like 91% of you said you had at least one person you were sharing the gospel, trying to share the gospel with this year. It was a high percentage. I can't remember the exact percentage. It was like 70s or 80s had shared the Jesus with someone, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that he died for your sins, rose again, and offers you eternal life within the last six months. That is way higher than the national average. So I know that you actually do this. Why? Is it because that's what you're supposed to do? Is it because we talk about it as a church? Do you feel obligated? That's what good Christians do? Or do you do it because you talk about what you love? We all talk about what we love. Whatever it is, whatever it is that you love. You, you, you got a new weed whacker and the string doesn't break, and so you talk about your weed whacker. You ate some crispy pig head and you thought it was good, so you talk about it. You talk about Jesus because you love Jesus. It's why. 
You can do the right thing for the wrong reason. Giving. Jesus talks, he confronts them in this passage in Matthew chapter 23, I think it in Mark, or Matthew chapter 11 or 12, he talks to them about, hey, you tithe, but you don't love. What good is your giving? And y'all are a generous church. A lot of you tithe. A lot of you actually give. Different than the national stats. Why? You do it because your dad, when he gave you a dollar and you were a kid, he said, hey, you put this dime in there in the offering plate. You do it, you're supposed to. You, you give it what is commanded. You, you're uh, doing it out of obligation. Or do you do it because you have a generous father and so you've become a generous kid because you want people to see your father? It's right behavior. What's the reason? That gets at the heart. You see, the people say that, that we have hypocrites in the church. And the, and the question for us is, are we really any different than the people outside? Have we just cleaned up our behavior? Have we just become a better model of humanity with broken, deceptive hearts? Or do we genuinely have more joy than a non-believer? Do we genuinely have more love than a non-believer? Do we genuinely have more peace than a non-believer? Has he transformed us internally? So what Jesus is getting at in this passage is, I want to get past the surface level, past the lips, past did the song sound good, past any of that, and what's going on in your heart? Does your worship matter? Or is your heart far from me? Because hypocrites, they don't see it in themselves. They're blind. Hypocrites, they focus merely on the externals. And here's the third thing. Hypocrites find ways to disobey God. They find ways to avoid obedience. That's what we see next in our passage of Scripture. Look at verses 8 through 13 with me in Mark chapter 7 here. You have let go of the commands of God, he says, talking to these same guys, and are holding on to the traditions of men. So you let go of the commands of God. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And so he's quoting here from the Ten Commandments. This is not news to them. In fact, many Jewish scholars thought this was the most important of all the commandments in the law. And they knew that the implication of this command was not only that you don't say anything disrespectful about your parents, not just that you're nice to your parents, but when your parents get old and they need your financial support, you help them. He quotes another place where it talks about if you don't do this, then you're subject to death. He says, anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. Verse 11, he says, but, contrast, you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might have otherwise have received from me is Corbin. What is Corbin? Well, they're not Jewish either, and so he gives them a description here. He says, Corbin is a word that means a gift devoted to God. Verse 12. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. This is just one example. Now try and put yourself in the place of these Pharisees again. Imagine you're there. You've confronted Jesus about what you think is his sin. He's just flipped the script on you, called you a hypocrite, and now he says in front of a group of people, let me tell you a for instance. <laughs> uh, that's an awkward moment. Let's talk about my sin. I'm good. We're good, Jesus. Let's just stop having this conversation. But then Jesus goes on and he gives an example that they would have been shocked at too. Because they thought, they knew they did this. They thought that what they were doing was actually biblical because they used the Bible to trump the Bible. And so they thought you, couldn't, you can't break a, a vow, which is Numbers chapter 30, but you're not supposed to use those vows to then trump the other commands of God, like honor your mother and father. And apparently they had this tradition where you could say the word Corbin, which means a gift devoted to God, over your stuff, continue to use your stuff for yourself, but you didn't have to use it for your parents. Isn't that convenient? And they thought that was biblical. They had come up with a way to avoid obeying God because the obedience wouldn't be convenient to their selfish indulgence, to their greed, which was a heart issue. 
You could see it in their behavior, but it was so masked no one would know because they even thought that what they were doing was biblical. Now we see this today too. And one of my jobs is to study the Bible to share with you guys. And it's regular that I come across a passage of Scripture where there are different views on the passage of Scripture. And we don't always get into those different views, but oftentimes you'll see there'll be like liberal scholars. One of the things that they traditionally do, classic that they'll do, is they'll take historical background of a passage and they'll use that to trump what the passage actually says. Rather than to, to un- better understand what the passage says, they'll use it to say, well, it doesn't really mean that. So you, you talk about, you know, this sin, you know, this sin here. It didn't really mean what we think of for that kind of sin because the Ephesians, blah, 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 and a bunch of yipping and yapping them out. And it is, it's, it's like you just ask yourself, that's not what the Bible says. And what they're doing is coming up with a way to avoid obeying the Bible. And what happens for many of us is that, well, I'm not sure. These guys are really smart. And so we know what we want to be true because we make up Jesus. We know who we want him to be. And we know what the, we want the Bible to say. And I just have to find a smart person to agree with me. And we're each actually held accountable for what the scripture says, not for what we want it to say. And so our jobs as students of the Bible is not to find an interpretation that agrees with what we want to be true, but what does it really say? And so I'll get an email. I might get one today. I'm sure this is a, not a real feel-good type message. <laughs> but I'll get an email. Somebody says, hey, you're wrong on this, and you said that. And, and we'll talk, and we'll email back and forth, and I'll share some passages, and they'll share some passages. And then eventually what oftentimes happens in these email encounters that I'll get is that someone will say this statement. Oh, the Bible's open to many interpretations. Let me tell you something. The Bible does have a lot of people that interpret it differently. The Bible itself is not open to many interpretations. There's one interpretation of the Bible. It's our job to find what it is. I'm sure I'm wrong about it in some areas. But I want to be held accountable before God for that. And so you take it seriously. It's not just find the one that I like. And what happened here is they chose the interpretation that was convenient for them. I remember in seminary I had a friend, super smart guy, one of the smartest people that I know. And he, would, he wrestled with whether the Bible was really God's word, whether it, was really author, whether it was really from him or if it was just good literature about God. And we would talk about this weekly, sometimes daily. We'd have lunch. I, I remember going back to his dorm. And I remember one time in his dorm, he was so honest. He said to me, you know, we've been talking about these different theologians and what different people think and whether it's really God's word. And he said, but here's the reality. I don't want to do what it says. That's why we do most of that stuff. Because it tells us to do things that we wouldn't naturally do. And we want to avoid obeying it. And for some of us, we get real intellectual about it and we twist it. We do all those things. For some people, you know, you already know what it says, but you've come up with a reason from your own story. I remember talking to a woman one time at our church and we were just talking. She started asking me about giving and she said, I'll tell you what, I'll I'll faithfully give once everybody else in the church starts faithfully giving. (laughs) Where is that in the Bible? Once the majority of people, in fact, if you read the Bible, you'll see a theme of, if you're doing what everybody else is doing, you're probably in trouble. It's usually the, re- the remnant, it's the minority that are, doing, that are being faithful. Where do you come up with this? Why do we come up with this stuff? Some of, us, some of you, God's called you, some of you, God's called you perhaps to the foreign mission field and you know it. But you've got a reason and you've got a justification, you've got a thought. Let me tell you something. Hypocrites find ways to avoid obedience. Some of us have relationships that are not reconciled and we have not done everything in our power to reconcile them. And we know the Bible says do everything you can to live at peace with one another. But we've got a reason. We've got a story. 
hypocrites find reasons to avoid obedience. Some people, we have people that we need to forgive. And I understand that can be a process. I understand that. Jesus said, forgive as I've forgiven. Some of you won't, though. I'm never, I won't forgive. Hypocrites find reasons to avoid obedience. Some of you have got secret sin. Hypocrites find reasons to avoid obedience. Some of you, slander, gossip, but here's why, and here's the story. We find reasons. We find reasons to avoid obedience. And Jesus says to these guys, you do a lot of other stuff like this. This is just one example. There's lots of examples that we could give. This is one. This passage is tough. And you get to this place, and it's like, what do we do? Well, look what Jesus says next, verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, not just the Pharisees anymore, not just the people he's calling these blatant hypocrites. He says, listen to me. Everyone understand this. Jesus is about to say a prophetic word. He's calling them in. He's saying, what I'm about to say is very important. I want you to get the first word of this next verse. Verse 15, nothing, nothing, no thing, nothing. In the Hebrew, that means nothing. In the Greek, that means nothing. In the English, it means nothing. In Latin, it means nothing. In whatever language you want to pick, nothing. The next word is not except, by the way. Nothing except adultery. Nothing except murder. Nothing except stealing. Nothing except homosexuality. Nothing except, look what he says. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean. It's not your behaviors that make you unclean. It's not that you stole money from your company. It's not that you cheated on your spouse. It's not that you did these. Nothing outside of a person makes him unclean. Then he goes into this analogy, this food analogy, by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. Oh, so it doesn't mean that everyone's clean. After he had let the crowd go and he entered the house, the disciples asked him about this parable. It wasn't a parable. He just made a statement. Maybe it seemed like a riddle to them. So Jesus says to them, are you so dull? (laughs) We won't put a paraphrase on that one. He asked, don't you see that nothing outside that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? Here's why. It doesn't go in your heart. Look at the next verse. For it doesn't go into his heart. It's your heart that makes you unclean, and your heart is unclean. It's desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. If you think that's just one verse, I'm going to read Romans chapter 3. There's no one righteous. No, not one. It talks about how dirty our heart is. It's the New Testament, by the way. It's quoting Isaiah. And then it's Romans chapter 3, verse 23. It says, for all have sinned. There's no exception. Everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. It's your heart that's the problem. But the stuff that you put in your body, it just goes into your stomach and then out of his body and... Then Mark gives us this commentary. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean, even crispy pighead. Verse 20, Jesus went on. I was just talking to his disciples here. Crowd's gone. So what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of the men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, adultery, greed, malice. This is Jesus' list, by the way. Deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. See, the theme of this passage is what's clean and what's unclean. If you go back in chapter uh, 7, verse 2, talking about what's unclean. Verse 5, what's unclean. But then you get into where Jesus starts talking, verse 15, two times the word unclean. Verse 18, unclean. Verse 20, unclean. Verse 23, unclean. He's talking about what's clean, what's unclean. He's saying your hearts are unclean. It's what comes from within. That's the problem. You know what? People say that statement all the time. Well, God knows my heart. The same God 
who knew Ananias and Sapphira's heart, when they were hypocrites and they stood before God, they lied to the Holy Spirit and he struck them down dead? And you take comfort in that statement. Well, God knows my heart. The same God who in the Old Testament, when the Israelites were worshiped, because Moses went up on the mountain for too long, they made a golden calf and they're worshiping an idol. And then, do you know what happens next? 3,000 of them end up dead. The same God, he does know your heart. Oh, but the news gets worse, by the way. See, the problem is there's nothing on this earth that can fix your heart. It's not just about cleaning your heart up. It's like I remember when uh, my dad had multiple heart surgeries and uh, ended up dying. I remember the last surgery that he had, they came, while well, he was still on the table, they came in and I was the family representative and so they're talking to me about, I've tried all these procedures and they explained all these procedures. I said, none of this is working. His heart's not strong enough. I said, well, can you try this? Can you try it again? I said, well, we can try again, but it's, I'm letting you know it's not working. And it's really hopeless at that moment. So I said, well, can he get a, tra- can he get a new heart? And I remember the doctor said, he's not eligible. His body's too, and to put it in lay terms, it's too broken. And they started telling me all the different reasons why, but they said, it's not, not good enough. He can't do it. There's nothing, it's like there's nothing on this earth that can fix your heart, and your heart's broken. It's a hopeless message. But you know what? The same Bible that says that our heart is deceptive and wicked and deceitful above all things also says this in Ezekiel. It's an Old Testament promise. It's God speaking. I'll give you a new heart, and I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart, not just clean up your behaviors. I'll remove the wicked heart that is in you, heart of stone, and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you. Don't miss that part. Not just you get a new heart. You're going to have new desires. I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. See, you'll obey my commands and my commands won't be burdensome. You'll want to do these things because you love me. Because I'm going to give you a new heart, not a heart of wickedness, not a heart of selfishness, not a heart of self-deceit, but a heart of righteousness, a heart that pursues me. Who's going to see God? Blessed are the pure in heart, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. I'm going to give you that kind of heart. And here's the reality. Unlike my dad's situation with earthly doctors, God, our great physician, there's no one that's too broken. How do you receive this heart? Well, it's by faith. It's by faith. You place your faith in not what you're doing, but what was done for you on the cross. And at that moment, it's called justification for believers. It's at that moment you become a Christian. It's at that moment when you stop trying to clean the outside of the cup and realize my heart's so broken. I can't fix it. No one else can fix it. It doesn't matter if I stop swearing, stop cheating, stop lying, stop whatever it is. Because it's not about the behavior. See, hypocrites focus on the external. Hypocrites are blind to their own hearts. Hypocrites come up with reasons for disobedience. But when you humble yourself and the message that Judas was preaching, repent and turn. You can preach the message without knowing the one you're pointing people to. You turn to Jesus Christ. He gives you a new heart. That's justification. But then what happens? You still live in this place. And you're still fighting sin. And so you've got to put that sin to death. And so you keep turning. You keep, by faith, going back to the cross. You keep, by faith, coming to Jesus. Hey, sanctify me. Sanctify my heart. So there's justification, and there's sanctification. And in the sanctification process, you continue to fight because you want. He's changed. He's moved your heart. Now you want what's right. It's impossible to do. Two people do the same thing for the wrong reasons. So what about your worship? Does it matter? I'm really asking you a heart question. Is your heart close or far from God? If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, then that means you need to trust Jesus to be your Savior. 
You sur- it's not clean up your life. It's not come to church more. It's not get involved. It's not start serving. It's not do some project. not do some social justice. not legislate for something. It's, your heart has to be transformed. And Jesus can do that, and he will do that. He'll give you a heart transplant. He'll give you a new heart when you come to him by faith. Acknowledge your sin before him and ask him to be your savior. But some of you are believers, and you say, well, I still got these problems. Yeah, no kidding, because you live on this earth, and things are not as they should be. And he's making everything new. Old is gone, new is coming, a new creation. It's those who have, that are clean. You read the last chapter and the book of Revelation. Those are the ones that are going to be in heaven. You're made clean by Jesus Christ. What does he say to the believer? If you sin, 1 John 1, 9, I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You keep going for the cleanse. You keep coming back to him because you're fighting sin to put it to death. And so at the beginning when I asked you if that was pleasing to God, the real answer for you is, is my heart right with God? You have to be a follower of Jesus Christ and then in right relationship, which is a continual repentance, a continual turning to him and not allowing that sin to hinder our relationship with him. So let's do that. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we need you. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We are sinners and we just beg for your mercy. I pray if there are any here today that don't know you as Savior, that this moment right now would be the moment of salvation for them. I pray that at this very moment they would call upon you to be Savior. And if you need to ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior, you can do that right now. Just acknowledge your sin before him. And say, right now, Jesus, I want to ask you to come into my life. I'm tired of doing this on my own. I'm tired of trying to be a good Christian. I want, I want you to be my Savior. And it's the Jesus of the Bible that you're calling on, not the one you make up. Because he died for your sins on the cross. And he rose and defeated death. And Father, I, I pray on behalf of those that are believers in you already, I pray for any that need to repent, any that need to turn to you, that they'd come back to the cross. And they'd come to you. wouldn't go through the motions of religion. wouldn't just try to be a better person, just be a nicer husband, a better neighbor. But they would come and they'd hunger and thirst for you. And then you'd direct from the inside out, you'd transform their behaviors. It's a huge difference. God, I pray you'd do that. Help us to receive your love and to love you more. In Jesus' name I pray.